for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, we take a ride along the entire 7,700-kilometer stretch we call the Trans-Canada Highway. From St. John's in the east all the way out to Victoria in the west, we meet the author who's made the journey not once but twice. Find out more about how the Trans-Canada Highway came to be and some of the highlights along the way. Pancakes and politics. It's been a record-setting weekend at the Calgary Stampede with more visitors than ever before. And that means a few politicians dropped in, of course, to take advantage of the big crowds. How do you prepare a party leader for the event, and how did it play out this year? We find out. A new report reinforces those concerns that heat waves are claiming a lot of lives, especially of the elderly and other vulnerable populations. Are we doing enough to protect them, and what else can be done? But first, it was another weekend of extreme weather, with record-breaking heat in the far north in Canada, torrential rain and flash flooding in parts of northern New York State and Vermont in the U.S. and into Quebec as well. We check in with Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell to find out what's going on and what we may see for the rest of the summer. Global News Chief Meteorologist, the name you may recognize, Anthony Farnell, is with us this half hour. We're talking about all this extreme weather we've been seeing. We talked about it a bit last week, too, because we had the hottest day uh, globally on Monday. It happened again on Tuesday, then it happened again on Thursday. Uh, we're seeing another massive heat wave, a really big one about to hit, I gather, uh, the southern U.S. around Arizona. Uh, Anthony, what do you see coming for the rest of the summer then? Because it feels like we've had a summer's full of extreme weather in, uh, what, two and a half, three weeks already. Yeah, and I mean, if you count the months of May and uh, I guess early June, it's just been uh, been an incredible start, not just to the fire season, which I'm sure you've been talking about in, in prior episodes, but uh, just the amount that of, of different events going on uh, globally, and it just really connects us all, or at least it should. We we all are, are kind of in this together, uh, no matter no matter what's going on. So we have to be aware of our surroundings and and just kind of uh, just take note of, of, of the planet, maybe mentioning or, or just letting us feel things together. That this is this is this is something serious. I think. Yeah, and you just mentioned you were in Vermont when this happened. I guess it means we just have to pay more attention to when, because it used to be sort of weather extremes weren't quite, it didn't feel like they were quite as extreme. Now it's just good to be informed about what the weather is going to be like around where you are, I would think. Maybe, you know, clearly, when when, when we have these extreme events, they, they just feel a little more extreme than they used to. Yeah, they definitely do. And I, I was on uh, Twitter Spaces uh, last night, actually, talking with a bunch of experts and different people in in. in fields ranging from meteorology and climate science to just uh, basically messaging how do we how do we relay messages to different communities different individuals different political parties to to just kind of figure out okay what what can we actually do about this how much of it is related to just regular cycles regular meteorology uh, and then when when you have just those that have been doing it for a long time saying okay yes i agree weather happens but we're now just at a level where it's happening so frequently, these extremes everywhere, that it, that it should concern all of us. Yeah, I guess the challenge with the communication is that you don't want to be sort of, you don't want to set your hair on fire and, and sort of and, and have every, you know, sort of cause people to doubt. At the same time, you want the message to get through to even those who may doubt some of the broader issues at hand here. Yeah, that's exactly it. And especially the younger folk listening or watching my TV broadcast, you just don't want to scare people up because that is what, I mean, media does. We're all very good at it. It's whether you're looking for clicks or whatever it may be, just sound bites. Uh, the extreme kind of grabs some people's attention and for others, they just 
tune it out. And that is, uh, I guess, the, the worry. But it, it's not just one solution. It's something that I think we all have to just be aware that things are changing and, and it may be happening a bit quicker than, than a lot of us would like. Yeah, what, what was what was the, the, the outcome then of that chat? Sounds like a fascinating chat to have at this time because I gather a lot of people, a lot of uh, people in, in your field are struggling with this idea, but you know, how do you explain this? How do you make sure that it doesn't become sort of, you know, people don't just sort of tune out to the severity of it because that can be deadly, right? Um, that people are actually paying attention when oftentimes, even in a conversation like this, we're talking about, you know, these record-setting temperatures up north, deluges in, where, you know, in and around Vermont and Upper New York State and Quebec. I mean, it feels like every day, there's some new extreme weather event going on and eventually people do just kind of tune it out unless it's happening right in their backyard yeah and then and that's what happens and until the next level of extreme occurs or <laughs> and, and it is easy to to be bombarded by it whether you're on social media or you just turn on the tv it, it all kind of uh, goes in that direction and and part of that is because yes there is a lot as you mentioned and i'm sure as, as your listeners know from from your show and others is, is that yes there's a lot of crazy weather going on just seeing smoke day after day in the sky through the early summer is unusual it maybe has happened before but when you combine that with the floods with the fact that uh, if you're in florida you, you're breaking records and outside of key west the water temperature there is 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 96 degrees Fahrenheit, if you can picture wow. that dipping no, your feet in. No, uh, we were there at Christmas, and it, yeah, we were there yeah. at Christmas. It certainly wasn't that cold, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is all uh, in a way related because the trade winds are weakening because the cycles are, are just out of whack. And uh, yeah, this, this is something that uh, you ha- has to be communicated, and then solutions have to, to sort of, uh, over time, uh, make a difference. And, and that's, I guess, the concern going forward. Well, Anthony Farnell, as always, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And, and the summer is young, so we, we may be talking again, Ben. We may be talking again. Uh, Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell there talking a bit about the, uh, the extreme weather we've been seeing. We're talking about more extreme weather over the weekend. It's been awfully hot in the far north, uh, up around 37 degrees, if you can imagine, record-breaking temperatures in parts of the Northwest Territories. Of course, you may have seen the pictures uh, today of the incredible torrential rains they got in upstate New York and northern Vermont and over on the Quebec side of the border as well, and and the flash flooding that that's created. We're waiting for another big heat wave uh, to come down in the southern U.S. There's already been a really bad one in that area and through to Mexico already this year. And a lot of this raises the questions about how do you protect vulnerable vulnerable populations when it gets really hot, right? There was a new study out today that looked at last summer's brutal summer heat waves right across Europe. There are many of them. And it found that more than 61,000 people died. Now, this was published in the Journal of Nature Medicine today. And it suggests, of course, the two decades of efforts in, in Europe to adapt to a hotter world have failed to keep pace, right? Uh, now... 61,000, you know, there could be other reasons too, but the idea that people die when it gets really hot is not new. And it seems to be getting, at least according to this study, worse. And this summer has been bad as well. And as Anthony Farnell, the Global News Chief Meteorologist who was on in the last half hour was talking about, we have an El Nino weather pattern coming this summer for the first time in four years. And that's going to make it 
even hotter. That's just the way it is. Now, most of the people who died in Europe and that were found through that research into last summer's devastating heat waves were older than 80, many of them women. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily something that should come as a surprise because we found similar data here in Canada with heat waves hitting this country of late as well. It is most often the most vulnerable that are left to cope. Now, Think of this, approximately 36% of Canadian households don't have any form of air conditioning. Now, that's mainly in BC and in Newfoundland and Labrador, but also elsewhere. Here are some in Ontario talking about coping with the heat there of late. I have a one-week-old son, um, so he's not coping with this weather very well, and our heat is just brutal. Our bodies are designed to operate in a really narrow temperature range. And when we go past that temperature range, we start to get sick. Indeed, the BC Coroner Service uh, released a review last year that attributed 619 deaths to that extreme summer heat of 2021, the so-called heat dome. And protecting the vulnerable from the heat has moved sort of from an issue of comfort, which it was for a very long time, to maybe one of conscience, right? It's about, it's a human right, right? Uh, joining me now with more on this is Jennifer Baumbach. She's a professor in the School of Nursing at the University of British Columbia. She's done a lot of research on this topic in particular. Jennifer, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. The study out of Europe today, I mean, the findings, the numbers were, wow, were really, really, really high. But I suppose given your perch and what you look at, perhaps not completely surprising that uh, the heat continues to take such a toll on our most vulnerable. For sure. I mean, last week, the Earth experienced the two hottest days on record. And so we've seen temperatures rising worldwide over time here in Canada. For sure, we've been experiencing it. And we know that there are certain groups that are more vulnerable during these heat events than others. And so it isn't surprising, but the number is huge. I mean, they are reporting 61,000. And I think we need to always contextualize that, that that's the deaths that get counted and potentially there's more. And then there's also issues around morbidity and people just getting really sick, but not actually dying. So the consequences of heat are um, pretty extreme for populations around the world. Uh, and, and what's what's odd about this, too, is that I distinctly remember back maybe 15, 18 years ago, there was a terrible heat wave in France right in the middle of the summer. Uh, there was a significant proportion of you know elderly people died during that heat wave. And it was sort of a wake up call. One mm -hmm. thought, uh, certainly in that part of the world, that this was an issue that had to be looked at. I mean, of course, Parisian apartments, not a lot of air conditioning, lots of stairs. You know, they were not built for uh, older folks, especially those with pre-existing conditions to to stay put during a during a heat wave. How much have we learned in the last 15 years about how to better protect vulnerable populations during these events? Well, sadly, I think this is a situation where we know what protects vulnerable populations, but it's going to cost money to do what's needed to address the issue. So even, you know, two years ago in Vancouver area, we saw 619 people die during our heat dome. And many of them were older people, women, people with other disabilities. And um, since then, we haven't really seen significant changes that are going to address this at the population level. And a lot of times the advice is about things that we can do for ourselves within our own home. But that's not really going to shift the dial in addressing this issue at the population level. No, uh, where where in where does the vulnerability lie? Because it mm. feels like this. I mean, it is getting significant. It is getting warmer, or at least the heat events that we're having are getting more extreme. I should put that mm -hmm. into context, and therein lies the problem, I think. But when we look at what's happening, where where do the problems lie then that wouldn't have existed maybe twenty, thirty years ago? 
Well, I think that part of it is our housing to address those extreme heat issues. And so for groups where they're going to have a greater reaction and negative reaction during heat, like older people, and that's related to normal age related changes, some changes in their ability to regulate their temperature, their hydration status, those kinds of things, it just makes them that much more vulnerable. And when we look at that older population, they're more likely to live in older housing in inadequate housing that isn't set up for people during extreme heat. So it's a combination of both sort of things that are happening within the individual at that population level, and then also the environment in which they're living. And and one of the things I found interesting just researching before we spoke was that it's not just, you know, individuals who are struggling through this. Our paramedics were stretched. Hospitals were having trouble coping with this. I mean, it, it feels like the, so the whole system isn't really set up for these changes in temperature. Absolutely not. And I mean, again, when we're thinking about the Metro Vancouver area, we associate it with rain. So we're really well equipped for rainy weather. But, you know, I lived in Ontario 20 years ago for a couple of years, and it was really stunning to me that everybody's home had air conditioning that I was going into. And that's just so unusual here. So we see that collapse happen within people's homes. But then we saw the collapse of our healthcare system during the heat dome as well. For sure, I had people participating in my research who were calling the paramedics. The paramedics didn't come. We actually had one extreme situation in a family where a caregiver died at home waiting for the paramedics during that period of time. And now we've just recently had a new report come out about our hospitals and how about the power systems within our hospitals were failing during the heat dome. And so MRIs weren't working and people weren't able to access care. So the whole system really became overwhelmed at that point in time. And we really found out that we don't have the infrastructure to deal with these situations. How is it then different from, say, something like, I mean, certainly there's going to be a lot of examination about what happened in long-term care uh, at the height of the pandemic. There's, you know, there's always examinations of what happens after floods and so on. But it seems like heat, I mean, it may be a little bit different after the heat dome here in BC a few years ago, but it seems like heat waves don't ever attract the same kind of scrutiny in terms of how the system's set up to cope with them as other things do, like blizzards, for instance. Or, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like those are really, we look at those quite closely when something goes wrong and people people are harmed. But with heat, not as much. I, I Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think it's a really interesting point because I think there's a few things. I think partly it creeps up on us, right? And then we think, oh, it'll be over soon. We can just get through this hump, right? Um, It's going to be hot for a few days and then we'll all be okay. Whereas with some of the other events that we've experienced, like when we had atmospheric rivers here that caused flooding and outages of roads, that's a different crisis because all of a sudden people are cut off. They're isolated. They can't access health services. Um, And similarly with blizzards, things shut down. And so you might have power outages for days. People can't even move about. And I think with the heat, also because it's just not something that we think about as being an emergency. We all have sort of grown up thinking, well, an earthquake is an emergency. And we don't necessarily think about heat as being an emergency. We should be able to enjoy the heat, right? We're all looking forward to those sunny summer days. We talk about it like that. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And so it's been a shock. I think people here were really shocked when the heat dome happened because it was our first experience of those kinds of extreme temperatures. And then I think you have the situation where people say, oh, well, it'll never happen again. It was a one-off, right? And so what's the point of building a bunch of infrastructure for something that 
you know, has happened and now we don't expect it to happen again, except that we know that through weather predictions and climate science that we do expect the heat to continue to rise. So I think that there, you know, we're moving towards a critical mass of people understanding that this is our new normal and that we need to start to adapt ourselves, our homes, our communities. But unfortunately, that's always a bit of a slow process. Yeah. And we're certainly reminded again this year with, I mean, maybe BC hasn't seen the kind of heat wave we saw two years ago in early July, but we've certainly watched other parts of the country and other parts of the world going through intense heat waves. Uh, Jennifer Balbush is with us. She's a professor in the School of Nursing at the University of British Columbia. Uh, There's new research out today out of Europe that found that some 61,000 people may have died over last year's brutal summer heat waves across that continent. Uh, That was a study published today. And we're, we're reflecting on that just because of all the extreme weather we've been seeing so far this spring and summer, especially heat about just how vulnerable parts of the population are to heat waves and how we don't talk about it enough. We're certainly awakening to it now. When we come back, what can be done? What should be done? That's next. Jennifer Baumbush is with us, a professor in the School of Nursing at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about uh, how to mitigate the risks of high heat. We've been seeing it. uh, There's a study out of Europe today published that looked at last year's summer heat waves across that continent. Some really intense temperatures last year. 61,000 people may have died due to the heat. Uh, You know, that's a number that was published today. And we've been looking at that in a Canadian context. If you remember back to the uh, heat dome in BC a couple of years ago, uh, more than 600 people were deaths of more than 600 people were attributed uh, to the heat. Then many of them, of course, those with other conditions, vulnerable people, and uh, just what can be done to protect them. So what needs to be done? I mean, I've read a lot about sort of the idea that air conditioning should be, you know, is a question not of convenience, but it's sort of a question of conscious, right? That you that it should be a right or cooling centers, like we have heating centers in the winter, just sort of needing to to build a whole infrastructure around the idea that on some days, certain people are going to be really vulnerable to the kind of heat that we're going to get. Absolutely. I think that mechanical cooling is a real piece of infrastructure that we need to just make the norm. It's actually surprised me some of the reaction of people to say, well, we can't have air conditioning for everybody when in lots of places, even across Canada, it's the norm. And so I'm not always understanding what the pushback is to make this part of our infrastructure here now that we know that we're going to have hot weather. And then I think the other piece, you know, at that sort of level of policy is around building codes. And so the city of Vancouver introduced some new building codes around having mechanical cooling that kicks in in 2025, but that's for new builds. And the people that need it the most are living in older structures. So I think we need to really push those policies so that we can really start to make our homes a safe space during the heat. Yeah, I always think of sort of, you know, older members of my family, they often, you know, those who are widowed or so they often live alone. They live in little apartments, older apartments, not a lot of air circulation. What can be done that I mean, clearly checking in on people is probably primordial, right? I mean, that goes without, because it kind of goes without saying, but what can be done in those situations to try to at least maximize the ability of those places to stay at least moderately comfortable? Some people have recommended in those kinds of buildings situations where you have a common room that people use the common room as a cooling space. And so setting up air conditioners where people can come together. The issue during the heat dome, of course, was that it was also during COVID when we were all trying to be socially distanced. And so people were quite concerned and anxious about going into the cooling spaces with other people, right? Um, And then there's a lot of things that people can do in their own home to prepare. I think for older people in particular, just recognizing that you might not feel as hot or as sweaty that you might have felt 20 or 30 years ago because of changes that are happening in your body. So sometimes you have to do things that you don't necessarily feel like doing, but are good for you. So drinking a 
you know, a big jug of water every day, making sure that you have a fan that's functional, using cooling cloths, having cooling showers or baths, all those kinds of things that you can do to help keep your body temperature cool. The other thing I recommend for people is when you know the heat is coming to prepare some meals ahead of time, maybe have them frozen or simplify your meal plan. Because one of the things that can put a lot of pressure on your cardiac system is doing your housekeeping, doing your cleaning, meal preparation, all those things that we do on a normal day, but maybe we shouldn't be putting that much pressure on ourselves on a really hot day. So I think there's all those kinds of things for that person who's living maybe on their own in an apartment that they can do to prepare ahead of time and during the heat. And then absolutely checking in on each other is key. I I guess a bit like prepping for a blizzard, right? Which we've done (laughs) forever in this country. We know how that works. Uh, You know, you you try to make sure you have enough in the house. You try to make sure you know what you'll do if the power goes out and so on. I I, I suppose one thing that happens, and I think this happens to all of us, is that you, as you age, you don't really recognize that you're not able to do the things you were able to do or able to tolerate what you were able to tolerate 10 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that maybe we need some more public health education about is these are some of the changes that can happen in your body, or that you might not even be sweating a lot, but you might start to get confused. And that's why having someone to check in with you is so important to see if there's some changes in your thinking that might be a flag that you need to get to the hospital and get some help. So definitely, I think having sort of a buddy system or having something if you are connected with health services in your care plan that people are checking in with you during these events to make sure that you're okay and that you have all the supplies you need to make it through until the weather cools down a bit again. We have, I mean, I, I know in Europe, I was reading that they, there are heat action plans. I mean, governments are, are, are way alive to this, to this threat. Do we have the same thing here? It's provincial clearly because it's health, right? Is, is that part of the issue as well that each province sort of goes its own way on these things? Um, I think that there's multiple layers in that as well, because it's also municipal sometimes. True. And so it's complicated because I think that people are trying to sort out who is responsible for what. And then you sort of have your community-based programs and supports, and then you have your healthcare community-based supports and systems. And so there's a lot of fingers in that pie trying to come up with these policies and procedures. I think that where we've moved to so far is around communication plans, letting people know when it's getting hot, letting them know what um, they need to do. And there is some good and consistent information that different organizations are putting together together so that you're not getting confusing information or different kinds of information. But some of those really tangible changes like around mechanical cooling is not something that we see consistent policy or funding around. So I think a lot of the focus has been on how you as an individual can deal with these heat events and not so much around what the government's going to put in place to help us all stay cooler. Right. Have you seen progress, though, at all, even since the Hito? Well, I think the progress is that it's a part of the conversation, right? In British Columbia, we now have two climate-focused ministries. We also have people across different ministries having climate-focused roles. We see that within our health authorities. We see in nonprofit organizations and municipalities. So the conversation is happening, and I think that's great. And I think we will see progress based on that. Um, It is, again, I agree with you, having some consistency, making sure that people are sort of on the same message, putting the same kind of resources and supports in place, because those people that are really isolated at home and disconnected from formal services, they're the ones that we want to find and reach out to, right, to make sure they're supported. And I think that's where I'm continually asked, like, how do we find those people? How do we support them? And that's where the real work needs to happen. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. 
it was a record-setting weekend at the Stampede in Calgary. I don't know if you saw the pictures over the weekend. There were lots of them, record crowds, to a new standard set for pancakes served on Sunday. The greatest show on earth, as it's called, is off to seemingly a roaring start, back to what it was like pre-pandemic. Uh, the attendance for the first day Friday broke the record for the first day, nearly 165,000 people, over 500 and, nearly 517,000 people at the Stampede this first weekend. I was also reading that it shattered the record for most pancakes served in an eight-hour time frame on the Stampede Breakfast on Family Day, which was yesterday, 17,182 pancakes. That's a lot of pancakes. And it shattered the record by almost 3,000. Now, of course, put that many people in one place when Parliament isn't sitting anywhere, when the politicians are all off the summer. And what are you going to attract like flies? Politicians, of course, uh, always eager to try out. I mean, it's a bit of a landmine sometimes, the stampede, because, you know, you got to put on the right stuff. And sometimes that doesn't always work out. We've seen that in the past. But anyway, they were there this year. Uh, the Prime Minister was there. Pierre Polyev, the leader of the official opposition, was there. Alberta Premier uh, Daniel Smith, Joe Gondek, the mayor of Calgary, was there. They were all there. But of course, all eyes were on, you know, a lot of eyes around the country were on the Prime Minister and the leader of the official opposition. The Prime Minister said his usual things. He met with Danielle Smith. We'll talk about that in a bit. Pierre Polyev was there too. They both did some pancake flipping, as one must do. And he also gave a political speech. Here's a bit of what Pierre Polyev had to say. This is the opposite of liberalism. Wokeism is about nothing more than control. More power in his hands, less freedom for the people. It is exactly what the opposite of what we need. Yeah, uh, uh, some familiar dishes on his political menu at the Calgary Stampede this year for Pierre Pilliev. Joining me now is Stephen Carter. He's a political strategist and president of Decide Campaign. Stephen, thanks. Welcome back. Well, thanks very much for having me. Did you get out? I understand. Stampede? You all ready I, to go? I, I've been once, but I was there sort of as part of a, I was there with a politician. So I I've never been able to get there and enjoy it. It's one of my, it's top of my bucket list. That and Gimli, Manitoba are my two places to be, to actually enjoy it. But I hear great things, obviously. It's a good time. And uh, everybody was crowding around the prime minister with the prime minister was going through the grounds. I was at two breakfasts with him on the weekend. He had huge crowds around them, everybody kind of walking, really? you know, trying to get uh, as close as possible to get a selfie. Um, there's, there's no questions asked anymore of the politicians, except for one. Can I take, yeah. can we get a selfie? Can we get a selfie? Yeah, that's changed. I don't know, that's maybe changed, they're trading cards. You try I wonder. There must be a million yeah. selfies of Justin Trudeau out there. And of Pierre Polyev at this point. I mean, there's just a billion selfies. I, I, I mean, wonder, I, you know, I don't like to brag, but even me. Like, it's pathetic what people will take pictures of these days. <laughs> That's great. How busy was it? I hear it was packed. Like, packed, packed. More packed than it has been in a while. The grounds are always packed. And, and, and of course, this year, um, you know, it feels like it's the first real full year after the uh after after the pandemic. But one thing to keep in mind, I mean, the Stampede draws somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.4, 1.5 million people. It broke a million people in 1977, I think, uh, back when Calgary was only 450,000. We're now 1.4 million. So it's still an important festival, but it's lost some of its uh, luster from someone who grew up here and uh, kind of, you know, remembers getting out of school and thinking of nothing more than going to the Stampede. Right. What do you think's changed? I mean, I was we we talked to the uh, to the head of tourism Calgary a little while ago, and um, I guess it's become a big. It's become something for everyone, and sometimes that means it's not quite as it doesn't quite have the same cachet that it did once. 
Yeah, and I think that there's also, everybody goes through phases of it, right? There's different stampedes. There's the politician stampede, which I've been kind of embarked on. We've seen every virtually every uh, provincial minister has been here, uh, many, many federal ministers, uh, not to mention the aforementioned leaders of the, the, the various parties. But then there's kids stampede, and then there's family stampede, and there's young adult stampede. And it's the young adult stampede that gets really tiresome for us. Old folks, <laughs> you know, older that, uh, folks can't quite keep up anymore. Oh, geez, that were them now, right? Going, oh, those kids. Oh no. Here oh, those kids. Yeah, those yeah. Kids. You can imagine. No, I've always thought, I mean, having worked in Ottawa on Parliament Hill, that I always thought that there was no uh, event every summer that posed more danger <laughs> to to an individual politician than the stampede, because oh, it is yeah. fraught. I mean, we saw it this weekend. Uh, those videos were going all over the place of, you know, people flipping pancakes and who flipped a better pancake, who looks better in his boots, who wears the hat better. I mean, it is, it is quite the test. Did they spend months training for this one? Well, I'm not sure they spend months training on it, but they do spend a tremendous amount of time getting briefed on it. We talked a lot about it on my podcast about, you know, the amount of briefing that goes on behind the scenes, right? So if you're going to go to an event, you're not just going to an event um, and and just going to flip some pancakes. You're also briefed about who's going to be there, what they're going to ask you, what the various uh, issues might be that you might have crop up. Um, You know, if you're the minister uh, of social services, then you're going to a social services event. Um, who are you going to see? What What are they going to ask for? How do you not say yes? These are the important things that you need to get through because you can't just go around and tell everybody yes to every one of their requests. You have to be, uh, you still have to be a minister of the crown even while you're, you know, flipping pancakes and uh, kissing babies, as it were. Yeah. And is there any advice on sort of garb and all that stuff? Because, of course, that invariably every year, it's like it never changes. Every prime minister and every leader of the opposition that ever shows up at Stampede is always judged on how they look. And it's a bit of an odd one. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's been going on forever, but but it is it does become really part of the whole process. Well, and it's not it's not native to any of us. I mean, even those of us that have lived in Calgary our whole lives, this is a costume. It is not a an everyday thing that we're wearing here. Uh, this is something that we go out and buy special. It's like Halloween, but it's 11 days straight. And you're going to be seen in, in these costumes and judged in these costumes. We have photos that still circulate of uh, Prime Minister Harper, who's a native yeah. Calgarian, who looked Indeed. like the worst stereotype of a of a horrible cowboy uh, when he wore his outfit. And and he was mocked. And, and I was I was fascinated that Pierre Polyev this year came out more just the uh, just the the white and black t-shirts um, showing off his his newly acquired uh, muscular body it was, it was looking yeah. pretty good not bad for an old yeah. fellow yeah, there was a lot of that going on. This it was it was the strangest of, of I mean, social media is kind of, kind of you know, it's it's its own world, right? So God, no, who knows whether what's being talked about on the ground, but how was the reception for it? Because I, I mean, it looked like everyone got a pretty warm reception. There was no, there was no shenanigans this year, as far as we could tell from the outside, for any of the leaders that turned up. No, I mean, we were often talking about how. You know, they're, they're, you know, one year Ralph Klein took a pie to the face at, at the Stampede. It just doesn't seem to happen very much. First of all, lots more security. Uh, tremendous right. amount of security for the Prime Minister, tremendous amount for, for the uh, leader of the opposition, uh, Premier's mayors. Everybody's walking around with more security than we've ever seen. I think that that tells a story about the times that we're living in. Um, and secondly, you know, 
this isn't the time for political protests. This is the time for people to flip pancakes, kiss babies, uh, you know, go on a go on a ride and um, tell everybody how much you like them. Uh, it's just it's not a time for critiques. We don't see protests at these things, generally speaking. Um, everybody's just out to have a really good time in the middle of July wearing uh, long, hot Wrangler jeans and uh, and uh, some other clothes that we haven't worn in our closet since last year. Yeah, often brand new, as we saw saw this weekend. And, of course, it does kick off sort of the summer barbecue. It is the ultimate kickoff of the summer barbecue circuit for all of them. Both Daniel Smith and the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, spoke on Friday just ahead of their first meeting, their only meeting, I gather, a political meeting at least. Here's what they had to say. We would like to establish a working group so that we could talk about how we might be able to achieve a net zero power grid. But I've uh, indicated to the Prime Minister that that is not possible by 2035, which is the the federal target. We've been told that by our experts here. We will be able to sit down and really look at what our experts are saying, what your experts are saying, figure out the common ground, figure out the path forward that's going to make sure we're responding to the energy needs of a growing uh, economy around the world, while at the same time making sure we get to that net zero by 2050 that we all agree on. Oh, that's uh, both the Prime Minister and the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, talking on Friday, actually, before they sat down to meet. Um, Stephen Carter's with us, political strategist. Uh, he's helping navigate uh, the politics of the Calgary Stampede this year. There's been a lot of politics already. I, I've always, I always look at the body language when, when Daniel Smith and Justin Trudeau meet <laughs> and how exuberant the Prime Minister always tries to be. Like, he's trying to conquer yeah. her with kindness and upbeatness. And I always wonder if it's working. They sounded relatively cordial on Friday. You know what? Um, both of them are actually just nice people. Uh, I mean, I don't agree necessarily with either one of them on all of their politics, but they are fundamentally good people and nice people. And uh, it's it's kind of hard not to like both of them in, in person. Um, this is a stark contrast from the last time Danielle Smith met with the prime minister when she kind of walked away, uh, wouldn't shake his hand. You know, the, the handshake, handshake was the... Yeah. You know, it's just the worst handshake in, in Canadian political history. And now, now it's, they're talking about shared goals and, and trying to reach things together. It really does show that stamp, it's not the power of Stampede. It's just more along the lines of, you know, do we really want to fight on Stampede, you know, during Stampede? It's a, it's a time when people are, are celebrating, having a good time, and frankly, barely paying attention. So not necessarily the time when you're going to get big big return on your uh, on your fighting investments right if you were just to judge it though as a microcosm of politics in this country because you know there's a lot of division obviously going on and it's been it was a pretty rough um uh, winter ter- winter session for the liberal for the liberal government uh the conservative opposition's been on the attack for months now and if you sort of had to look at it as a, and my calgary is going to be a big battleground i think in the next election it's a changing city at this point uh, what did you mm-hmm. read from, from how did you read the sort of the the tea leaves is probably completely the wrong analogy but how are the tea leaves well, I think that we, there, no one's looking at Calgary and thinking, well, we're just necess- it's just always going to be conservative uh, from now on. It, it, there's a lot going on here. 50% of the seats, over 50% of the seats in Calgary were won by the New Democrats in our most recent provincial election. Danielle did win the election, but she held on by the skin of her teeth in a, uh, in a way that we've never seen conservatives have to in the past. So that that's a cloud that hangs over this stampede as she's, you know, it, it only happened a month and a half ago. And this is the first time for her ministers to really see the light of day. So they're, 
you know, they're still reeling a little bit from having the smallest government size uh, in, in, you know, basically in Alberta history. Uh, this is the largest opposition in Alberta history. Uh, as you know, we tend to elect dynasties and kind of keep them forever. Um, that's certainly not the case this time. So there's a lot going on. I think that uh, Justin Trudeau does send some blood in the water and will be uh, testing things out to see if, if maybe his Liberal Party will, will appeal to uh, voters that voted for the uh, NDP this time. Right. And I noticed, that, of course, I mean, Pierre Polyev being, being, you know, a Calgary kid himself, he did get a very warm reception as well. I mean, that should be fertile ground for him. Uh, you know, the Conservative leaders, I've gone to the Conservative dinner so many times and, you know, uh, they could get up there and just literally just say blah, blah, blah. And the audience would uh, respond unbelievably fair, favorably. You know, this is not an audience that's approaching their speeches with any critique. Um, You know, I'm not sure when woke entered into um, Pierre Polyev's speech patterns, but it's not something we speak about here in Alberta. It's it's kind of, you know, why are we importing Florida into Alberta politics? But, um, you know, he's not going to get criticized for it this week. This week is uh, is a week for, you know, just getting out there and, and winning over the the, the population just simply by being there, you know, and if you can get yeah. yourself on top of a horse, you're really cooking with fire. Yeah, absolutely. And then there was the t-shirt controversy too, which quickly, I suppose we can, we can mention that both Danielle Smith and Pierre Polyev were photographed with someone wearing a straight pride t-shirt. They both apologized today. Uh, just from the, from being there, there must be a million people they take pictures with. I know their handlers should be taking care of this, but as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people, right? There's a lot of people, but there's that's a bad staff work and b bad yeah. candidate work. Um, it wasn't it wasn't exactly subtle. Um, those photographs yeah. have shown someone who was proud of what he was wearing and w- went for the photograph uh, with the principal. And you know the staffer is the first line of defense. The staffer should absolutely have stopped that before it actually happened. But the second line of defense is the politician themselves, and the politician should look at a t-shirt like that and say no. I'm not taking my photograph with you. And that should be the end of that discussion. But instead, um, you know, I think that both of them, you know, didn't want to be seen. I I don't think it's that they wanted their picture necessarily taken with that individual. It's that they didn't want to be seen to be saying no to the picture with that individual. And that's a significant problem. Well, Stephen Carter, as always, thank you so much for this. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. The Bank of Canada will announce its decision on the target for the overnight rate, the interest rate, on Wednesday. And it's widely expected all six big major banks in this country do believe we're going to see another interest rate hike as inflation uh, continues to be fairly sticky. We had some really big, good job numbers that came out uh, just a few, uh, just, you know, a little while ago. 60,000 jobs the country added, driven by gains in full-time work. Um, while the unemployment, raise ro- unemployment rate rose a bit, highest since February 2022, uh, you know, the gains in jobs were far higher than expected. So the economy is still rolling along. Interest rates are still, or uh, inflation rates are still high by traditional standards. Uh, and so the expectation is that they are going to continue with these raises. We saw one a little while back of a quarter percent to 4.75. The expectation now is, is it's going to go to 5% and likely stay there. That'll be that, apparently. We'll, we'll see what happens with the economy. Um, but that means another quarter point, and that means the cost of borrowing goes up yet again. And uh, the cost of mortgages, if you're waiting to renew your mortgage and you're on a 
you know, on a fixed rate right now and you're going to move back in or if you're on a variable rate already, it means it all goes back up again. Uh, personal finance expert Rubina Ahmed Haq spoke with, to Global News about this today. Yeah, so it's going to mean money is getting more expensive. So if they raise rates with what forecasters are expecting by 25 basis points, the overnight rate will be at 5%. And we haven't been there since 2001. So for most people who own a home today, they've never experienced this interest rate environment. And so it is something that they have to relearn how to manage their personal finances, manage these increased payments on their variable rate mortgage. Uh, what, uh, how can they do to prepare? Definitely don't take out more debt, uh, especially that variable interest rate debt that's in their home equity line of credit, uh, because money is going to get more expensive if Bank of Canada does raise uh, rates uh, later later this week. Rubina Ahmed Hawk speaking with Global News. They are expected to raise rates. We'll see. It's never a done deal. We'll see on Wednesday morning. It comes as inflation and higher interest rates and declining real estate values are worsening wealth inequity or inequality in this country with younger households bearing the brunt of that financial pain. Well, to look into all this for us, someone who always has a good opinion on these things, Ron Butler is a mortgage broker with Butler Mortgages and host of the Angry Mortgage Podcast. You can find it on YouTube as well. Uh, Ron Butler, thank you. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I saw a funny thing on your Twitter feed today, which I always think is, I highly recommend uh, Ron's Twitter feed because it's full of information. Uh, someone asked you, you know, if you had all the powers in the world and you were king, what would you do? And you said, abdicate. And I thought, wow, that's uh, that's quite that's quite telling. Why is that? What's going on out there? It doesn't make any sense to be king. I mean, no. it's, it's a tough one. I mean, there's things to be done. Uh, they're difficult things. They're hard things. They're... There's situations where you have to tell people, look, your house price is probably going to have to go down a little and certainly not go up anything for the next 10 years just to try to regain some slight version of normalcy. And let's face it, no one wants to hear that. Absolutely no one who owns a home right now or has a mortgage, um, particularly people who bought recently in the last five years, they don't want to hear that. They want the magic of massive property price increase. Um, I think that's just a truth that you can't escape from. Yeah. I mean, I mean, people are reluctant to vote against their own financial interests, right? I think there is some sympathy amongst homeowners out there about what, what's going on in the market. But if you ask them point blank, yeah, that's you know, that means your place is going to take a 10% hit over the next 10 years, and it's not going to go up in value with the, you know, with the rise of, uh, with the pace of inflation. I'm sure most would would uh would would no comment to you. Most. Yeah, they they might they might say something like, "Oh well, if it helps my kids, that's great." But when they go back into their house and think about it overnight, they say, "My God, I hope that doesn't happen." Yeah, absolutely true. That's correct. What do you think of this? I mean, everybody everybody predicts we're going to see another quarter point increase on Wednesday, so up to five percent. I mean, by historical standards, not extremely high, but by modern standards, very high, especially with the cost, the the price of housing. What do you think the impact of this next uh, likely hike will be? Well, there's a few people who are just hanging on by their fingernails who've gone through uh, those those people who have variable rate mortgages where the payment goes up every single time the Bank of Canada increases. This might be the last straw for, let's face it, could be thousands of them across Canada. They'll have to take action. Uh, they may have to sell. They may have to convert to a fixed rate, which is a t lousy rates right now on the fixed side as well. So it just might be a, a kind of a, a, of a ultimate bad news. Now, for the people who have a variable rate mortgage where it does not 
increase in payment. The payments stay the same, static payment. Some of them might actually go through the final stage of a trigger rate, the, the trigger point in their contracts where something absolutely has to happen. They have to start paying more, maybe not a lot more, but they have to start paying more. And the, for those people too, it's going to stretch out their lack of paying down any interest to an extreme. More and more people, if there's an increase on Wednesday, which we expect, will see their mortgages grow who are on these static payment variable rates. Their mortgages will start to grow. It's the opposite of what's supposed to happen when you pay your mortgage down. Those mortgages will grow. So it's bad news all around. Hasn't happened yet, but certainly all of us expect it. Right. The trigger rate, of course, is when the interest that you're paying, when you when the payments that you make stop even covering the interest on your loan, on, the, on your mortgage, right? Right. That's exactly right. Yes. Um, we've been seeing, I've been reading articles about, you know, some people finding, finding themselves in 80, 70, 80, 90 year amortization, which, which seems, you know, this is the kind of thing that when I lived in the UK, housing there was so you know, inordinately expensive that people got much longer mortgages. But what's that? This is a trigger rate thing too. I'm not a trigger rate, but it's the same part of the same equation whereby it just keeps being stretched out and stretched out and stretched out because you're not really paying down the mortgage anymore. The real issue that we have to contend with is that they're not really 70, 80, 90 year amortizations. What they really are, they're just not getting paid down. Right. And the interesting aspect of that is what happens at renewal Uh, In 2025 and 2026, the vast bulk of all of these mortgages will renew that have gone through this experience. And technically speaking, if they had a 30-year amortization at the beginning of their contract, they must revert to 25, which essentially requires an astronomical payment increase. So in some cases, the bad news is just being kicked down the road, but it will come back to haunt everybody eventually. Yeah, as is often as is often the case, right? Why haven't we seen? I mean, I, I, it's hard. I think if you're on the outside looking in, you hear lots of stories. The markets are a little bit different, I suppose, but we haven't seen sort of a great crash yet, right? We haven't seen prices come down. We haven't seen a big sell-off of places yet. What's been going on behind the scenes? That's a great question. What's happened in 2023 is that we did see some price recovery. Prices fell in 2022 in many locations, in the Fraser Valley, in British Columbia, in parts of Vancouver, in much of Ontario. Prices fell from their 2021 all-time high, their our second quarter, our first quarter of 2022 all-time high. Prices did come down, but in 2023, many of those areas recovered. Uh, prices went back up again, although that has come to a crashing halt in the last six weeks when fixed rates have once again climbed back to their 2022 levels. So will prices fall? Yes, I believe they will. I believe it's inevitable. But why aren't a bunch of houses being sold on a kind of required basis or forced sale basis? That's because people are just avoiding selling. If you have a 2.99 five-year fixed with three years left to run in it, you're just staying and standing pat. You're not selling. You're not doing anything. And therefore, very low inventory in Ontario, British Columbia, and even in parts of Alberta. Right. So anyone who can hang on right now is just hanging on, waiting to see how thing, how the cards fall. That's exactly correct. Everybody is just standing pat. Even when sales activities bounced up in April, May, and June, they didn't bounce up much. I mean, it was not like even a regular year such as 2018, 2019. It was still a low number of house sales in Ontario, British Columbia. There just wasn't a lot of action, but prices did recover somewhat. 
Ron Butler is with us this half hour from Butler Mortgages. We're talking about the Bank of Canada is widely expected to raise interest rates another quarter point on Wednesday. That would bring it up to 5%. That ends the pause that ended uh, a little while back when they raised them to 4.75. And we're just talking about the impact of that and also just what the housing market is doing because there's lots of things going on behind the scenes and it's becoming increasingly less affordable for many people, certainly to buy, let alone rent at this point in time. Uh, When we come back, we'll look a bit Look ahead a little bit as to what what can be done, because as Ron was pointing out off the top, uh, even if you had magical powers, it would seem difficult to fix what has been a very long time coming in our housing market in this country. That's next. Ron Butler is with Butler Mortgages. Uh, we're talking about the Bank of Canada, uh, about, we believe, I mean, many experts believe, will raise interest rates again on Wednesday, up to 5%. Uh, as Ron's been pointing out, that is, you know, a 300% increase uh, in, in mortgage costs from uh, last year to this year over the last 15 months or so. Uh, Ron, you put this out in, in, a, in a long thread of, on social media today. But there really are no, and we talked about it off the top, there really are no simple solutions here, no great policy solutions either. And yet people stuck who can't afford a place to live who are dropping huge amounts of their take-home income on rent, so they don't even have any equity in it, they're going to start to get really upset about this at some point, you would think. And then you pointed out, there's a whole segment of the population that are like, crisis, what crisis? You know, I own a, I paid down my mortgage five years ago. I'm fine, right? And that, and that dichotomy is going to be going to be a tough one all around, policymakers for everyone. Absolutely true. We've got a group of people in Canada who have no mortgage. They look at the run-up in house values as only positive to them. It's kind of a retirement account they're building up. And they say they have no concerns. They have zero concerns. People who rent, on the other hand, if they have in a fixed rent-controlled building, they feel okay. But the minute they have to move, they're confronted with, in some cases, as high as 40% increases on rents, which is just a staggering attack. Or anybody coming new to the country who's looking and new Canadians, we had a million of them last year coming to the country. They're, they've got to find someplace to rent unless they stay with family. And those are shockingly high rents almost all across Canada. So yeah, there's a group of people who are largely unaffected and there's a group of people who are wildly affected. And one thing's for sure, there's a group of young people, a big cohort of young people, people in their late 20s and 30s, who sincerely look at the idea of purchasing a home in Ontario or British Columbia as an impossibility that they will never own. And it, and, and those people, for those people, it's just tragic. It is. And you've pointed out as well that oftentimes it's not that when, when those people start to leave to look to other places, perhaps, whether it be a Calgary or maybe the East Coast, they don't necessarily, it doesn't mean that prices fall where they came from. It means prices increase where they wind up, which is also a bit of a unfortunate part of this whole equation. All true. One of the, the big conundrums here is that we are starting to see fewer and fewer new home starts across Canada. Uh, one of the outcomes of high rates is that some of the people who might normally build houses, even though they might own some land, they just can't make the formula work to build. So incredibly, even though we're bringing in uh, record numbers of new Canadians or students and temporary workers, and rents are very high, we're actually building less homes, less places to live than we were in 2022 and we were in 2021. It's actually shrinking on a month-by-month basis. Yeah, I saw those numbers. Those were, I mean, that was specifically what was not meant to happen, right? Building was meant to increase. That was the whole point. And here we are, you're right, all through 2023, we've started to see that that curve, that line come back down. Now, you've been doing this for a long time, Ron. When you look out there, at what's going on. I mean, what's going to happen in the next 
two couple of years, two, three, four years, because it feels like we're kind of coming to a head a little bit with interest rates rising, new builds down, rents way up. I mean, we feel it feels like uncharted territory for Canadians. Well, the the phrase that you hear used all the time is something will eventually break, something right. will break. And it it may break, but, you know, housing moves at a glacial pace, as we've seen. I mean, let's face it, if this was France, there might have been riots already, uh, but uh, not so in Canada. We like to get along. Here's the thing. There will be there will be a moment in time when a, a large cohort of people just says this doesn't work for me. We're actually hearing about it a bit now where people are actively trying to find a way to leave Canada, not just new Canadians who've come here and found it very difficult, but actually Canadians in their late 20s and 30s who are saying, I would just be a lot better off in the States or perhaps even Europe. I mean, you can actually find houses in the States in big cities that sell for less than one half of what houses sell for in big cities in Canada. And uh, young people have to think about that a little bit. Yeah, you were pointing out to someone, because I think a lot of people out there who may be in a position where they're, they're not suffering through this, look at this and say, well, we've always complained about affordability. I remember, you know, back in the 80s, I paid, you know, $48,000 for my house, but my interest rates were at 16, 17%. And you pointed out an interesting one that it's the value of the, the how much you have to spend on a home in relation to income now that's increased so much that just makes it so unaffordable for everybody who doesn't have one. That is the key metric that is the only rational thing to use. You know, interest rates change, house prices change, but the relationship between what people earn and what a house cost used to be pretty steady state. People paid between two and a half times and three times their income for a number of decades after the Second World War. Um, So, you know, it was a rational relationship between house prices and income right across the country. Some places a little less, some places a little more, but that's about where it was today in the in the provinces that take up half the population of Canada, British Columbia and Alberta. It's easily 10 times normal family income is what the price of a house is. And if that isn't aberrant and unmanageable, I don't know what is. What certainly drives a form of inequity that I don't think Canada has ever seen before, because it's the one major expense you have is putting a roof over your head. And if one of a significant chunk of your population can do that, and then and then another chunk cannot, you know, it, it, I mean, this we're, we're exiting the mortgage area of this, but it just seems like on the housing front, we're we're in we're in for some for a bit of a rough ride if we can't figure out what to do. Absolutely true. So what we're up against now is governments actually proposing to take some action, at least in in both Ontario and British Columbia, we have premiers who've suggested major changes in zoning, major uh, approaches to multiple family uh, dwellings on uh, land that was previously single family dwellings. There seems to be a willingness to do something on a provincial basis. If we try to do something, if we try to rezone, then will it just get hung up by the bureaucracy? Look, In the city of Toronto, it takes 28 months to get the final release on a building permit from the time you start. So if it takes just if it takes less than 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 three years, that is just an enormous amount of time. So what we're up against in Canada is also an almost hopeless level of red tape and bureaucracy that even if you change policies, how do you change the bureaucracy? Yeah. And analysis paralysis, as as they often refer to it as. Ron, thank you so much for your insight on this. I much, much appreciate it. Listen, thanks so much for having me, Ben. Appreciate it.
Well, with the warmer weather, as we talked about earlier in the show, a lot of us will be hitting the road this summer, heading to campgrounds or lakes, enjoying local parks, the great outdoors in general, so to speak. And on both sides of the border, that comes with some risks. It's a reminder now from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency about the threat of invasive species and how they often like to hitch a ride with us, meaning we can unsuspectingly help introduce, introduce threats into what is always a fragile ecosystem. Canada is no stranger, of course, to invasive species. These are flora and fauna that are detrimental to agriculture, forests, and the overall ecosystem. But again, growing discoveries of new non-native pests that have recently crept in the, into the country are raising some concerns this year once again. Recently, the CFIA confirmed the presence of two new invasive species here, with a third likely to arrive in the near future, because right now it's just across the border in Michigan and Upper New York State. They are the box tree moth, the spotted lanternfly, lanternfly rather, and a fungal disease called oak wilt. Patricia McAllister is national manager in the horticulture section at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, and Diana Mui is senior specialist in the invasive alien species section at the CFIA as well. And they both joined me. Thank you both for your time tonight. Thank you. Thank nice you. to be here. Well, Patricia, I suppose just to begin at the beginning where, and then this was something that CFIA is trying to get out there this summer and every summer, uh, is be on the lookout. I mean, when we think about invasive species, uh, they do a lot of moving on their own, but they're introduced by us. So what, what would you like people to know this summer uh, if they're out and about? Well, we just would like people to be looking for things that don't seem quite right, whether it is a sick tree, an insect that they've never seen before, or something that that just, you know, isn't feeling right in their, even in their own backyards. And there's lots of folks that they can reach out to through the cities, the provinces, as well as the CFI when they, they see these things. And um, we like to know what's happening so that if there's something new, we can potentially um, stop it before it spreads. Diana, and given what you do, you must you, just the impact of invasive species uh, is hard to, it's hard to understate, isn't it? Yeah, they can have they can have a tremendous impact. You know, when things are introduced to Canada and they don't come with the things that eat them or or keep them in check, they can really uh, spread quite quickly and and you know have a, a large impact on our agriculture, on our forestry, um, and on the environment itself. What are some of the examples of things that people might be familiar with? I know we talked about the pine beetle out here in BC. I mean, it's been talked about for ages now, but there are many examples of invasive species that do real damage or threaten to do real damage to some very important parts of our economy. Uh, right now, um, in British Columbia in particular, we're working with the province of British Columbia and the BC Invasive Species Council to try to stop Japanese beetle from um, spreading beyond the Metro Vancouver area. And uh, we we certainly appreciate the participation of the public in those areas and in helping report where that pest is and, and following the, the best practices like not moving soil and not moving plants with roots to stop its spread. And in Eastern Canada, we're very familiar with emerald ash borer that was introduced into southwestern Ontario and is now spread eastward into the maritime provinces and with it has taken the ash tree with it and and dramatically impacted a lot of city streets that used to be lined with beautiful ash trees that now have all had to be replaced with smaller new trees. 
Yeah, Diana, growing up in Montreal, I remember Dutch elm disease doing some... some I mean, I think we all, in, in wherever we lived in the country or live now, we all have images of things that have happened that have been due to invasive species and so on. Uh, how do they move around? I mean, I, mean, I, th- I think we have an idea that somehow they come in in the bottom of a box or something. And uh, But how is it that, that invasive alien species in this country spread? Well, they can spread in lots of different ways. I mean, um, some of them, if we're looking at invasive plants... Sometimes they can be brought in as seeds inadvertently, contaminating, you know, other seed lots or coming in on people's pets or on their footwear. But things like flighted spongy moth, uh, that can come in on marine vessels from overseas. It can lay egg masses on on marine vessels and get transported across the ocean that way. Um, for a pest that we're, we're looking to keep from coming into Canada, um, spotted lanternfly, uh, it spends most of its life on trees, so it can can move on on things like woody nursery stock, and it can move on on logs that are imported. Um, but it's also a great hitchhiker. It doesn't move very much on its own, but it's a it's a great hitchhiker, and it can move on people's vehicles, on on campers, even on their camping equipment. Which is why you know everyone can play a role in in keeping pests out of Canada. But if they're traveling, if they can get in the habit of, of looking at the things that have been outside and that they're going to be bringing back into the country, uh, and if they see any insects, if they see any, any seeds, uh, removing those things before they return back to Canada. Yeah, Diana, just to stay with you for a second, because the spotted lantern, lanternfly, I gather, has been reported as close as Buffalo, and that's awfully close. I mean, lots of Canadians travel back and forth across those borders into, into northern New York State. Yeah, that's right. There, the last year there were reports of spotted lanternfly in Buffalo, New York, and also in um, in Pontiac, Michigan. So two areas that are very close to the Canadian border and and close to the areas where we have wineries and and grow grapes. Which that's the the crop where we feel like the largest impact is going to be felt from from spotted lanternfly. Patricia, the box tree moth is another one we've been looking out for as well. I mean, the CFIA, CFIA sent out a press release sort of targeting a few very specific ones that seem to be areas of concern. Tell me a bit about, about that species. Well, box tree moth was first detected in the greater Toronto area in 2018. And this is a pest that was reported through a community scientist who was taking pictures of moths in their backyard and happened to post one that they hadn't seen before. And again, this is highlighting the role that the public can play in helping um, let the CFI know when something new is in the area. And this pest eats only boxwood. So those lovely little um, dense green um, shrubs that stay green all year round and are very popular in gardens. And unfortunately, this caterpillar can do incredible damage, leaving some boxwood hedges so that they look more like tumbleweeds than a hedge. And as, as Diana said, uh, you know, it's it's the human assisted movement that can certainly um, lead to this pest spread, but it can also fly up to 10 kilometers a year on its own. And so we have a hot spot in Ontario where we know the pest is present, and uh, that's sort of in the GTA in Niagara area. And we appreciate when the public inform us when they have found it in other areas. And um, as recently as this spring, unfortunately, it moved on some nursery stock to Quebec and Atlantic Canada. And we're asking folks in those areas to be looking for this pest. And if you see something eating your boxwood hedge uh, in Quebec or um, the Maritimes in Newfoundland, we'd love you to tell us at the CFIA about it so we can try to determine where the pest is established where it isn't. 
Right, of course. I guess we have to be, you can't be everywhere. The CFIA can't be everywhere at once. We, you need us as your eyes and ears as well. Patricia McAllister is National Manager in the Horticulture Section at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. And Diana Mui is a Senior Specialist in the Invasive Alien Species Section at the CFIA. We're talking about invasive species and how the public can help the CFIA make sure that ones that are already here don't spread further and how to try to keep ones that aren't here yet that are on watch lists from getting in. Uh, there have been some a few concrete examples. The spotted lanternfly, we talked about earlier has been seen as far north as uh, Buffalo, New York, Pontiac, Michigan, near the borders, really, and the box tree moth, which is already here in the country. When we come back, just a bit more about how it is you can keep an eye out for these things. What is it, what is it that you're looking for? We'll talk about that after this. Patricia McAllister is National Manager in the Horticulture Section at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, and Diana Mui is a Senior Specialist in the Invasive Alien Species Section for the CFIA. We're talking about how the public can help this summer make sure that invasive species that are already here don't spread further and those that aren't here don't get in specifically ones that perhaps you'll drive in from the u.s or so on but you know there are many different ways that they arrive in this country um patricia when you when you look at some of the ways that that one can because i know i mean unless you're sort of well versed in 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 bugs and so on it's hard to kind of spot things that are out of the ordinary so what you, you say you're sort of looking for anomalies right you're looking for things that have suddenly changed that don't seem quite right within your own even your own immediate urban environment or rural environment that's right. And and I think we have a lot of um, really great gardeners in Canada who know when there's an insect eating a plant in their garden that's never had it, that type of an insect feeding on it before, or when they see that oak tree in their yard suddenly go into a state of rapid decline and things don't seem quite right. And so I think those are the the types of things that we're asking the public to just be on the lookout for. There, There's wonderful websites like iNaturalist where the public can post and, and report different things that they've seen. But um, it's great if they can come to the CFIA or to the provincial government first so that, you know, we have a heads up that something might be in Canada before you know, the the world knows about it because sometimes these pests can impact trade and, and we like to be out there to try to confirm what's really there. But prevention really is key. And as you said, there are pests that can that can fly across the border that can travel with us, you know, as, as Diane had pointed out on our camping equipment and things. But something we often don't think about is the importance of not moving soil. And especially right. when, you know, if you have been hiking in a, a foreign country and you come back and there's soil on your shoes, that soil could contain microscopic worms or weed seeds or, you know, pest eggs that we could potentially then be spreading into our own parks when we hike there. So not moving soil and being aware that there are import requirements on plants um, for planting specifically, as well as as for certain um, fruits uh, that we grow here, like cherries, blueberries, and apples that are very important to the Canadian economy. And there's a reason why we have import requirements on those fruits, and it's to try to keep some of these pests out of Canada. Yeah, there, there's that little section on your on your declaration when you come back into the country that I think a lot of people just check off without thinking too, too much about it. We should probably at least uh, take into consideration what it could mean broadly. Diana, when how much does it help uh, in terms of stopping? Because I think there's this idea that once an invasive species is in, it's in. Uh, how much does it help when the public can spot something for you? Are you able to kind of limit the damage if, if you're forewarned? It seems natural, but oftentimes we think of sort of things coming into the country and once they're here, they're very hard to stop. Well, I think like Patricia mentioned, I mean, prevention is, of course, very critical. Um, and that's where we put most of our effort and 
and and try and keep things out of the country. But if something does come in, uh, it's very important that we're alerted as soon as possible because when we have these early detections, there there are sometimes things that we can do about the pest once it's here. But it's really helpful if we catch catch those pests when it's small, not when then there's quite a large population established. You know, as the population gets bigger, the chances of us being able to treat something, eradicate something the probability really goes down. And we have had some successful eradications in in Canada. Um, Things like Asian longhorn beetle, which is a difficult difficult pest to eradicate. Um, Canada has had successful eradication for that pest in the Toronto area. And the public played a a key role in in alerting CFIA to that pest. Flighted spongy moth in, in BC, we've had successful eradication there. But again, if we can catch things when they're when they are small, when they've just come in, um, before they can, you know, have this sort of uh, stronghold and start spreading. And I guess usually the people who do the spotting are the ones who know enough to know that something's something's going on in their immediate environment, whether it be the gardeners or the or you know people involved in agriculture and so on and so on. But I guess we could do our own part too. Absolutely. I think, you know, having people aware of, of what insects are usually there, what diseases are usually there, and, and knowing when something is different is great, but everybody can play a role. Things like Patricia mentioned, cleaning your boots off before you're coming back from, from a hike in another country, brushing your dog off after you've been for a hike because weed seeds can travel in, in dog fur, checking your camper, cleaning your camper. Um, everybody can, can do, do their part to, um, to make sure things aren't moving. Something like firewood, you know, burn it where you buy it, not moving firewood around. There are lots of pests that can move on on firewood. So uh, making sure you're not moving that long distances and and transporting it um, to areas where the pests don't occur, that would be a great help. Well, Patricia and Diana, great advice. Thank you both so much. Thank Thank you. Imagine going along the entire, uh, driving the entire 7,700 kilometers plus that make up the Trans-Canada Highway. If you don't know this, because of where I am in Victoria, um, when I leave home, I live downtown, walk to work, I have a little office downtown. I walk along what is essentially part of the last maybe kilometer and a half of the Trans-Canada Highway. And every once in a while, if you go right to the end of it, it narrows down to a two-lane road, goes past a park, comes to an end. There's a statue of Terry Fox. There's a cliff, the ocean, and that's the end of the road. That's the end of the Trans-Canada Highway. So I have a whole new appreciation for the Trans-Canada because I happen to live at one end of it. Um, but, you know, that's it's an incredible stretch of road going all the way from St. John's in Newfoundland all the way out here. It takes, so there's parts of it that are old, parts of it that have been sort of supplanted by busy, by sort of bigger highways to allow for all that truck traffic. Uh, there are parts that are still the so-called scenic route, but really it links every single province to each other. I could leave here and I have to take a ferry obviously, but I could leave here and stay on the same road all the way across the country and wind up in St. John's. And that in a country of this size is pretty remarkable. And my next guest has made that drive from one end to the other, not once, but twice. He did so a little more than a decade ago, produced a book called Canada's Road, A Journey on the Trans-Canada Highway from St. John's to Victoria. Uh, and now he's done another trip. He's Putting a, he has a serial going on in the Global Mail. There will be a new book, more like a last spike kind of book, uh, to talk about just what this road represents, um, how it was built, the struggles to get it built. It's only, it's not really that old. And to tell, tell us all about it and about his two journeys, some of the highlights, Mark Richardson joins us now. Mark, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me here, Ben. 
Appreciate this is one of those those great stories because I think almost everyone in this country, and there are exceptions, but most of us know exactly where the Trans Canada Highway is from where we live because we've been on it, and we we know subconsciously that it connects one end to the other. Although unlike the railway, it's not exactly it's not exactly heralded, heralded the way the railway is. No, it's it's not quite the same thing. It is an iconic highway, uh, and I think that you're right that most of us think we know where it is. But I'll tell you, most people also assume the 401 here in Ontario is the Trans Canada Highway, and no, it's not. It's just the 401. Right. It's a trucking route along southern Ontario. The Trans Canada Highway actually goes north of the 401. It's on Highway 7, and it's on Highway uh, 17 up to North Bay. But you know, it goes through every single province, and it connects the country. Uh, and it's only been here for the last 60 odd years. And I, I think we just take it for granted. What was it like um, or what was your motivation to say, hey, well, you know, I think I'll do the whole thing. I mean, 7,700 kilometers would take you an <laughs> awfully long way in other parts of the world. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I did the whole thing 11 years ago. That's when I wrote this book, Canvas mm -hmm. Road. And uh, I did it then because I realized 12 years ago that it, the, the highway was actually opened on the exact same day that I was born. Oh, wow. July the 30th, 1962. I was the exact age of the Trans-Canada Highway. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good excuse for a road trip. So I decided to do the Trans-Canada, and I did it uh, back in 2012, driving a Camaro convertible. And the thing is that at the end of that trip, I wrote my book, and my book was successful, and I liked doing it, but it, it wasn't a real book. It was a blog book. At the time, I, I did the, that whole trip as a blog for McLean's magazine. And I wrote the blog every single night. And at the end of it, I had like a 60,000 word blog that told the whole story of the, the highway and everything else. But it wasn't the book that I had intended to write from the beginning, which was more of a, a, a kind of a last spike of the Trans-Canada Highway. And I had all these interviews and all these people and all this stuff that I hadn't included in that book because I had just been writing it as a blog at the end of every night. So I figured, well, I got the time this year to do it. I persuaded uh, Lexus to give me a comfortable car this time. Uh, not that the Camaro was uncomfortable, but the Lexus was especially comfortable, uh, an old man's car, if you will. I, uh, I drove this car uh, across the country from uh, St. John's to Victoria. And now I'm finishing up writing a series in the Globe and Mail about the Transcanda Highway. And now I intend to also write the real book, the actual last spike that tells the entire story of the highway. Because I think it's it's something that should be celebrated and, and loved. And we, like I said before, just take it for granted. Yeah, it, it had a slightly different, I guess it had a different connotation because it was a bit piecemeal over time, right? There were fights over it. There were, it was very, in some ways, even though it, it crosses an entire country, a lot of its development was very much regional and reflected some of these regional fights that were going on over many, many years. Well, absolutely, Ben. And I was astonished to discover that, that yeah, the Transgander is only as old as I was. I assumed it had always been here, right? But in fact, it was only, a, well, it was a 1912 that the first drivers even attempted to cross the country and failed miserably. They couldn't make it across Lake Superior. They couldn't drive through the Rockies. There were no roads. Back then, uh, back in the first half of that whole century, it was still the railway that was that was used for any kind of commercial use or for main transport use for, for passengers. And that railway would take you between cities in Canada, and it would also take you down to the markets in the States. And the roads were the same thing. Don't forget that way back when, not everybody had a car, right? Cars were luxurious things. So the roads weren't that important. 
But as people started to get cars, roads became a bit more important. And then the challenge of building the things through some of Canada's incredibly challenging terrain uh, came on. And the entire problem was that the federal government, which wanted the, the national connector for the country, had to persuade all the provincial governments that they wanted the same thing because roads were not the responsibility of the federal government. It was a provincial thing. The, the feds looked after the railway. They already had that one covered. But the roads came down to the provinces, and the provinces only cared about themselves uh, and with connecting their single province down to the states or to various markets. They weren't that bothered about reaching over to the next province next door. So there was a lot of politics that went into it all. And it took, uh, it took well, half a century to, to get all that wrapped up. What's it like? I mean, I've been on many parts of it, but I've never been on I've never been on the whole thing. I was mentioning earlier that I live in Victoria, so I actually walk some of the, you know, a little part of the last kilometer and a half of it every single day. Um, and it just kind of like it's so Canadian how it just sort of quietly dwindles into a sort of just a normal sized street that ends at a cliff at the side <laughs> of the ocean. You know, it, to me, that's that's a great way for it to end. But there must be some incredible parts of it that really stand out as being, wow, like this, you know, it's a huge country and this road goes from one end to the other. Well, it depends where you are, of course, because different provinces, different regions of the country have a different attitude toward the Trans-Canada Highway. In some provinces, it is a commercial trucking route, like in Saskatchewan or Manitoba. Well, all across the prairies, it's the major route for trucks. Uh, it's a big four-lane twinned highway, which blasts you across the province in as short a time as possible. In other parts of the country, and Quebec is especially that way too, and New Brunswick right. is the same, Nova Scotia. But in other parts of the country, it's more of a local connector. And and with you out in BC, I mean, the the main road is now the Coquihalla that goes down from Kamloops to, to Vancouver, but that's not the Trans-Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, the Trans-Canada is the scenic road now that goes through the Fraser Canyon. And I, there's a part of me that thinks, you know what, I'd really kind of like it if my Trans-Canada was the scenic road rather than just the commercial trucking road. The old highway, as they used to always call it, right? Like there was, there was always called the old highway when the new highway opened up, you know, there's one exactly. in Quebec, you know, like the 117 versus the 15. It's the road that it's the road less traveled, but it's the road that takes you through history, really. Exactly. But if you're going to have trucks on the road, then you need to make it safe. And it gets to be safe by having controlled intersections and twinning and all of that stuff. So it's um, it's a bit of a conundrum. What do you have? Do you have a scenic road or do you have a commercial trucking road? And in parts, the Transcanda doesn't really know what it is. Right. And are there, are there things that really stood out to you as you made this 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 long journey from one end to the other? There must have been moments where moments that were sort of breathtaking and also moments where you're like, and you, you didn't use a map, by the way, right? You just followed the road signs from one end to the other? Yeah, I didn't need a map. I mean, I, I had a map in the car, to be honest with you, but I didn't even need that. All that told me was roughly how far to go before maybe the end of the day was going to happen. What I learned from all of this was not just that we have a, a huge country here in Canada and that we have gorgeous, stunning scenery. We really do. Um, but it's also, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but it's the people you meet along the way, right? I made a point of stopping wherever I could to meet people and talk with them. I wanted to talk especially with people who had helped to build the road back then or to improve the road in the last little while or people who had challenges with the road, that kind of thing. All along the way from Newfoundland to British Columbia, I met up with everybody knew their bit of the Trans-Canada. They were very aware that they lived on the Trans-Canada Highway and that you could just walk out onto it and literally walk to anywhere, any one of those provinces that you wanted to. It still connected this. To my mind, it's it's the only 
physical connector that this country has. You have airline routes, but they're not really physical, right? And you have the railway, but you have to wait in line, and maybe there's a passenger train, or maybe there isn't, or whatever. Uh, it goes when it's convenient. It would be very, it's Whereas, very challenging to get from one end of this country to the other on a train, right? <laughs> I would predict. I mean, it's. I think you could get quite a ways, but it got, it's slow. It's slow. Wow. Well, it's also challenging to get from one end to the other on a bus, right? Yes. Even using these roads. But my my view, which is kind of romantic on this whole thing, is that you can at least just get out on your bicycle or get out and walk the thing, and it does connect you. You're not blocked by a big wall or a rock face or something. You can get to anywhere else in the country if you want to, thanks to the Trans-Canada Highway. Do you have any favorite spots along the way? Do you have any places that, now that you've done it twice, do you have any places mm. that you're like, this is the, the stop you have to stop at to eat, or this is the one place where, you know, th- there must be some real gems along the way. Well, the thing is, uh, both times that I've done this trip, I've done it from east to west. I started out in St. John's, ended up in Victoria, around the corner from you. When you get to BC, you realize, oh, this really is the pinnacle of the whole thing, with the gorgeous mountains, the lovely lakes, and then even the beauty of making it over to the island and down to Beacon Hill Park and and, and the beauty of that. There's less beauty and more stunning scenery in places like Newfoundland. But to be honest with you, Nova Scotia is just gorgeous, uh, as is PEI. They actually take a circuitous route in PEI. It's supposed to be the deal with the feds originally was that it was the shortest route uh, between uh, between cities. But in PEI, I guess because it's kind of small, they just kind of uh, steered around the coastline on the south uh, east of the island there. Right. And I, I met with the transport minister and I said, well, how do you guys – get away with that. You weren't supposed to do that according to the rules that the Fed's paying for for half of it. And he said, well, I wouldn't know and I wouldn't really like to ask. Don't (laughs) spoil a good thing. Some things better, left better unsaid for sure. Yeah, just leave it for now, yeah. I was amazed because I looked it up. Obviously, when one thinks of famous highways, one always thinks of Route 66, of course, right? Yeah, the Trans-Canada is significantly longer. Route 66 is about 4,000 kilometers, 3940. And uh, the Trans-Canada is significantly longer than that and, and, and covers a lot more ground, obviously. Well, I've, I've driven Route 66 a couple of times as well. And it is quite different in that half of Route 66 is just paved over. It's just the interstate. I think it's I-40 down mm. there when you get into Texas and across to, to the to the coast. With Route 66, it's all about the sort of memorabilia along the way. Somewhere along the line, somewhat, somebody realized, you know what, we can make some money off having something that reminds people of the good old days of motels and things in the 1950s and lets people wax nostalgic about how the country used to be. Whereas the Trans-Canada Highway, it's a bit more than that. It's a natural commercial route that uh, connects the country without having to go through the states. We have really found the value of that during COVID when the borders were closed. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the route you want to take to see the most beautiful scenery. It's the route you want to take to get to the place to see the most beautiful scenery. Like when you're going across the top of Lake Superior, for example, it's just lovely, especially if you time it in the daytime to see the sunsets across the water. Oh my God, you can't beat that. But in places like Quebec, it's just a trucking route across the country now. So you'd kind of want to steer up to Route 132, which is the old route, in fact. That's the original route the Trans-Canada Highway took, which runs along the south side of the St. Lawrence. And that is really nice and full of lovely little villages. The thing is that when they first designed the highway, they designed it so it would go through all of this stuff. All the various merchants along the way, part of the way that they sold it to uh, to the provinces, was that it would bring tourists and bring business to their their towns. 
the Transcanada originally went right through the middle of downtown Montreal, right down right. St. Catherine Street. And that just doesn't work when you're driving a big, heavy truck, right? No, no. So as changed, trucks yeah. took over, yeah, they had to bypass most everywhere. In Winnipeg, though, in Winnipeg, the Transcanada still goes right through downtown. There's a bypass on the outside, but I'm pleased to see that the, the main national route still goes right down onto Portage Avenue. Well, Mark, thanks so much for your time. <laughs> it's been my pleasure, Ben. Thank you.